0: to the voices behind Women's Cricket Chat. That's Alex, Hannah, Georgie and Cassie. Welcome to this week's Women's Cricket Chat. You've probably recognised two
1: different voices this week. It's the return of myself, Hannah, and joined with me is
2: Cassie Keems. Yeah, that's right. We're taking over from Georgie and Alex for this week's episode. And on the episode, we'll be speaking to Tara Norris, Southern Vipers and Southern Brave player.
1: Yeah, so basically going forwards, hopefully um, Cassie and I will commit to about one episode a month. Obviously, I've put on social media, I'm trying to get my PhD done. Cassie's just started a new job, all exciting working in the world of digital sport, so our commitment to Women's Cricket Chat at the moment is a little bit less compared to what it was last year, but we're still super eager to share the stories of amazing people in women's cricket, and we're so grateful that Alex and Georgie are letting us have this opportunity to stay involved and keep shining a light on the stories that matter.
2: With that, here's Tara talking about her Rachel Hayhoe Flint final success
1: where we want to first start is reflecting on that final with the Rachel Hayhoe Flint trophy because that was pretty epic. Honestly I had the privilege to watch it live seeing literally in that press box seeing the amount of journalists who had already scripted what they were going to write perhaps a little bit too confident with it and I was sat there and I was like no anything can happen and they're like no this is done Northern Diamonds are you know they're gonna win their first trophy. And then yourself with Emily Windsor, putting on that 78-run unbroken partnership, (laughs) completely turned tables. So just tell us
3: about that. I mean, it feels like a lifetime ago now. It's it's all a bit of a blur, really. But yeah, what a crazy game. I just remember walking off that pitch after we'd bowled and thought, yeah, we've done a great job defending or restricting to 180. And then next thing I know, I'm having to put my pads on and thinking, oh, this isn't looking good. And I remember Lot said something to me, just before I went up to Bert and said, look, just don't walk off this pitch or I think something, if you stay out there, we'll win the game. And in my head, I just got it, I just got it stuck in that, you know, I wasn't going to walk off until the game was done. And me and Emily spoke together and we, you know, chipped it away eventually. And yeah, honestly, and then the next thing I know, the team is right on the pitch. Everyone's around us screaming, dancing, singing, whatever. Yeah, just completely electric. Crazy, crazy game. Yeah, definitely very memorable.
2: And what did you and Emily say to each other when you're out in the middle? What was your sort of game plan at that point I know you said just sticking out there was a big part of it but was there anything specific that you said to each other when you're out there? There's a lot of conversation Emily was getting a little bit stressed
3: at times so it's mainly just me trying to calm her down and say I'm a massive optimist but even I was a little bit <laughs> apprehensive but I said look we've got this it wasn't even I think we had to go at fives or sixes at one point so it wasn't anything ridiculous and nothing that we hadn't done before so I think I was kind of just keeping reminding her of that and we were kind of trying to calm each other down and assess plans and and the rest is all a blur, really. It's at one point, I think, we need were 35 to win, I thought, oh my God, we, we can actually do this. Just stick it out a little bit longer and we'll be there in no time. So yeah, no, I wouldn't have been able to do it without her. And yeah, we worked very well as a pair and, and somehow saw her home. And the celebrations afterwards,
1: I got to see a little bit of that. It looked a little bit wild in there. How do
3: you celebrate post that win? That's a great question. One that I'm not sure I completely remember, but it was a bit of a weird weekend. I think I'd just graduated the day before literally went to my graduation and then stayed at the hotel the night before and then obviously we'd won and I think sort of after the game we stayed at the ground for for quite a while and it was really sweet actually we all sat in the middle and, and kind of just shared our, our memories from the summer and you know just funny stories that happened and then I don't think yeah I'm not sure I remember the rest of the evening to be honest but um it was really sentimental at the ground and you know there's lots of celebrations and I think a lot of relief yeah. as well and a lot yeah. of celebrations for the girls you know we had a bit of a rocky season we'd lost players for certain reasons due to the COVID isolations or our players going up to England which is fantastic so we hadn't had a, a smooth sailing season and we'd definitely been challenged this year so I think it was just celebrating that and yeah sharing the, the funny stories along the
2: way. Can so with that situation, like you said, you've got a lot of people sort of going off to England and doing things. Do you think that's actually, from a sort of more selfish point of view, a great opportunity for you to sort of step up and take on different roles? Because I know at one point in the 50 overs, I think after after the 100, you opened the batting. And so you had sort of different roles to usual. So how did you find that? And was that a good challenge for yourself personally?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think, first of all, amazing that our players are getting selected and, and being picked on there for playing well likes of Charlie Dean and My Boucher, but yeah also a chance for the Vipers to step up and those players like myself who maybe haven't contributed with the bat for example or a chance to really take advantage of that opportunity and and go out there and and see what see what you can do out there so yeah for example opening the batting in T20 which you know I, I never thought I'd get the opportunity to do. So, yeah, I think it's incredible and it's it's good that these players are being recognised going up to England and the players can come through as well. And then it's not just, you know, four or five players that are the core Vipers players. Everyone is contributing. And I think that's what our summer was about. Every, you know, it's a different player that stepped up every game and it was really good to see.
1: So my only frustration with that final was oh, no. nothing to do with you, no, nothing to do with you players, just more how it was organised in terms of the lack of fans in that stadium. Yeah, no, I, I agree. How did you find that? Because you obviously went from the 100 where you had packed out stadiums to then the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy Final, which is meant to be this mega event, to then have quite an empty stadium watching you in what was kind of the biggest event of a regional yeah. domestic
3: summer. Yeah, again, I'm not sure. I think, yeah, going from the 100 and, and having these crazy crowds and then maybe coming back to regional cricket was very different. But I think in terms of marketing, it, it definitely could have been marketed a lot better. Even if you said, you know, you've got Overland Vince winner. a George Adams taking on the Super Vipers and just kind of marking it in a in a slightly better way. You saw how well the 100 was marketed and the crowds that were getting there. So I think it could have easily been done. And hopefully that's something which will be improved next year. The T20 Charlotte Edwards Cup was really well advertised and we had quite a big crowd there for the final for finals day. So, yeah, it was a bit of a shame, but, you know, it didn't take away from how good the game was and, and the result. But, yeah, no, I I
2: completely agree. And obviously, like we've said, there's a bit of a difference between the 100 and regional cricket and... Sort of back a couple of years ago as well, there was obviously been a difference between the KSL and like the Rachel Hayhoe Flint trophy and things like that. So going back to those days, how did you find the sort of KSL in that environment? And do you think that sort of gave you a good foundation for performing well in the Rachel Hayhoe Flint and Charlotte Edwards Cup? And yeah, like that? I thought, yeah, the KSL was brilliant. And then I played the 100 and I thought, oh, my gosh,
3: this is 10 times better. This is crazy. I guess in terms of experience, I didn't play many KSL games. I think I played three in the total of four years it was on. So I probably went out to the regional comp, less experienced than other players or other pros. But even just being around that environment, I kind of knew what the expectations were. And even though I wasn't actually performing myself, I knew what the the standard was and, and how you're meant to go about business and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think players being involved in that and hopefully, you know, the regional stuff is equivalent of the KSL now. Those younger players will be in that environment and then they can, you know, get into the hundred and, and vice versa and, and hopefully just keep progressing and the sun will will keep increasing, I think.
2: So you got your cap in, in Headingley and that was a great moment for you personally. How did you feel making your debut in the KSL? What was that moment like for you?
3: Yeah, I think... God, this is a few years back now, but I think it was it was a lot of relief. Something that I'd I'd wanted to play for Lightning for a long time and I played the previous year, not played a single game. So there was a lot of kind of frustration, I think, and anticipation and, and just wanting to be part of the team. Just so desperately wanting to play and contribute. And, you know, it was such a great team that I wanted to be a part of the winning moments as well. So, yeah, I think I got that cap. It was, you know, it was a really special moment. But saying that, you know, getting your cap for any team is always a special moment. And so uh, that I don't, I think I only played a couple games after for lightning. And I was still kind of trying to find find myself in the game, in the team, and, and my role and stuff. So yeah, uh, but getting that getting that cap was was a fantastic moment. But you know, the same as getting my Viper's cap was also a very special moment. And actually to have a consistent role in the team and and you know, know my place in the team, yeah, it's a great feeling
1: how do you deal with that kind of uncertainty like you said and when you're trying so hard to break into the team but you're not getting that
3: opportunity so easy just to give up so how did you keep going um, yeah god it is hard you know I was you, you say a lot of players now are getting frustrated if they're not playing and they're you know 17 18 and you know, I was 20, 21 at this point and I still wasn't playing a game. And, you know, it is frustrating. It is hard work and it is, there's a lot of emotions in it as well. I think the key for me was I had really good people around me and I was constantly just pestering the coach. How am I going to get the team? You know, what can I do? Exactly, like, tell me exactly what I can do. How can I do it? Okay, I'm going to do this in training. Can you watch? What do you think this is going to do? And in that environment as well, there's so much you can learn as well. You're, you're playing with international players, you're bowling against them, you're batting against them. Just because you're not necessarily playing doesn't mean you can't learn and just enjoy being in that environment. Yeah, how I got through it, I guess it was just pure grit and determination. That was my last season at Lightning anyway, and I think I'd graduated anyway. So I moved, left Lightning, and so I think from kind of having that experience any kind of team that I walk into, I would never expect to play. I'm kind of very grateful and humble for any team that I'm involved in, despite my role, because I know how bad it can be and how you know frustrating it can be. But just to make sure that, I guess, yeah, for players who are struggling, make sure you get clarity from a coach exactly what they they want from you, and talk to people around you and your teammates and your friends, and or even people who aren't involved in the cricket who give you that perspective of, oh, you're not playing, but oh, but you're you're doing this and you're going here and you're seeing this then actually you get that perspective of
2: how good it is. And obviously yeah. when you went to Vipers, what was it about Vipers that you sort of really enjoyed? Was it the culture? Was it the values of the team? And obviously, like you said before, as a team, it seems like anyone can sort of step up. You've got people going off to England and things, but there are people within the team that can step up and fill those roles. And everyone seems to be able to be counted on at some point. So what is it about the team that makes Vipers so special?
3: Yeah, I, I don't know. We've, there's this culture in this team, there's this or in the group, which is very infectious. And, you know, we do have that winning culture. And I think that's a massive drive from from Charlotte Edwards and our captain, George Adams. Gads is an unbelievable leader in the group. And I'm not sure, I don't think I could pinpoint what it is exactly, but when the group comes together, I don't know, it just, it's just electric. And I think because, you know, we've been a very successful team, we know how to win and we are in good I don't know we have good habits everyone works hard everyone has fantastic work ethic and everyone wants it you know really badly so I don't know if I can pinpoint but yeah when the group gets together or when the group trains or plays yeah there's just that winning culture which is infectious and it just spreads around the team.
1: Thinking about Lightning in the KSL, that gave you kind of four to six weeks of kind of professionalism, didn't it? It was quite a short spin. It was a contract that was a fair bit of money, but nowhere near the amount of money that you get in the hundred. And now, well, how does it feel to first in 2020 to get that retainer contract, but now to actually say that your job is a professional cricketer?
3: Yeah, it's crazy. Still kind of sting to people. People say, oh, that's what, you, that's what you do for work. I'm like, yeah. And my sisters honestly can't stand it. They say, so you literally get paid to go to the gym. And I'm like, well, no, I do a bit more, but my sister's just absolutely rinsing me. Yeah, it's crazy. And I think just to do something that you love and you enjoy and you rock up to every day and, you know, your teammates, are your best mates as well. Very, um, very lucky, very, very grateful. But I think yeah, you've got to love what you do. And yeah, to be able to say that you do something for work that you enjoy and you, you know, you take massive pride in, I think is quite rare in a lot of work. But, um, yeah, no, definitely very lucky.
2: And as we've sort of mentioned before, The 100 was totally different and is totally different to regional cricket. How did you cope with that sort of extra media attention that The 100 had? Yeah, I guess no one really
3: was prepared for the amount of attention and awareness and, yeah, I don't know, media coverage that was going to take place. So I don't think there was any preparation for it. I think the way it was marketed and the amount of money that was put in, we knew it was going to be successful but I don't think anyone knew how successful it would be. Cass, I think you were there when we were we were walking back. We'd just played one of our games at the Aegeus and the men were playing. So we'd watched, I think, the first innings at the Aegeus and we walked back to our hotel and we walked around the ground. And all of a sudden we're kind of chatting away and talking and we're carrying our kit bags. And then there's this like standing ovation and people are cheering and whistling and clapping and screaming. And <laughs> there must've been about 10 of us or something. And we kind of just looked around and thought, oh, well, we missed a boundary. Like what's happened? And they were, they were clapping for us and they were cheering and they were shouting out you know Lauren Bell's name Sophia Dunkley and honestly it was the most naive but actually really like quite wholesome moment because we were so oblivious to they were tuned for us and they were so supportive of the women's game um for me that was just a crazy moment and then I think the next three home games we had every time we said yeah let's walk let's walk on the boundary rope and it, honestly it was crazy you know no one's ever experienced anything like that and so I think In terms of where the 100 took the women's game is just crazy and just so, so good for the game. Yeah, no preparation for it, really, apart from, I think, how to do an interview, you know, semi well. But yeah, hopefully it it does just get bigger and better and, and there is more media coverage and hopefully that can be transferred into the regional cricket as well.
2: Yeah, that was definitely my favourite moment. I think a couple of us went through our like favourite moments of the tournament and that was definitely up there when just yeah. seeing everyone walk around the boundary and everyone just on their feet. It was like the best moment for women's cricket just to see how far it's, it's come. Yeah. And like you said, hopefully... With the 100 and other sort of the regional game as well, we can take that sort of next step.
1: Yeah. So how was it to have somebody like Cassie involved behind the scenes, having somebody capturing not your every move, but most moves behind the scenes so you could get that athlete fan kind of content out there?
3: Yeah, it was brilliant. Um, it was nice to have someone, you know, you do get your media person or someone who's on socials, but to have someone on the team, I think it kind of just added a bit more of that personal touch and you can get to know the players. And it's great to see what you're doing on game day and on the pitch, but also to see what you're doing kind of behind the scenes, I think adds a little bit more. And yeah, like I said, it's not everything behind the scenes, but just those really nice moments or those kind of you're not a cricketer you're just a person and you're just doing this so i think me and dunks made some lego one day but um you know just different stuff like that and yeah i think it's brilliant and actually yeah to capture those moments and kind of sell it as a whole not just the cricket but you know this is a four week or six week that we're doing but we're also doing this we're also doing this you know these are
2: what we do in our spare time and these are what these people's personalities are like so yeah i think it's i think it's brilliant We've spoken about sort of the media attention, everything, but what was it like playing in that first game at Trent Bridge? And I guess a lot of people in the team spoke about how they felt almost rushed because you had like running through the archway, you had fireworks, you had a DJ. How did you deal with that and how did you find that experience in the first game? Yeah, so we were at Trent Bridge. I think it was an
3: 11 a.m. game or 11.30 start. And I think I think there was like 16,000 people there. For, and also for an 11 a.m. game is, I think, incredible itself. I don't know if it was a feeling of, well, for me personally, I don't know if it was a feeling of rush or just nerves and thinking especially we batted first there was more time to wait and more time to especially for a bowler as well to think okay I've got an hour and whatever until I'm actually going to bowl all I kind of remember is like being fielding on the pitch and then just it being so loud and thinking this is so cool this is incredible and you know it's like midday there's people or 11 o'clock people are three points deep already and there's music going on it was just so loud I'm, I'm thinking this is going to be a good tournament you yeah. know game one this is this is where it starts kind of thing I guess yeah if you expect other players they probably would say there's a bit of rush with you know when you can run out and you know the three two one countdown out mm-hmm. you go but I think I don't know you want a bit of shazam the crowd likes it and I think that's how it was marketed so you want all the camaraderie with it I guess if you know your prep and you know okay well I need to save 15 minutes for the disco lights and the run out and all all that kind of thing you can get all your prep in and hopefully it isn't too rushed but I mean, we'll see what they do next year. It could be it could be even more. Who knows? But um yeah, I guess there was quite a lot going on, but it was good fun. I think the crowd enjoyed it as well, which is what it's about.
1: Yeah, I guess most people in their routine are like, right, left pad, right pad, etc. Not left pad, right pad, disco. Whatever. Yeah, somersault, backflip, yeah, <laughs> that
3: kind of thing. <laughs> but hey ho, yeah, it's all good fun. And
1: then talk to us about your kind of favourite performance from the hundred. What really stands out in your mind, both personally and also other players in your team that you were kind, of, that you were proud of.
3: I think the, the game, game at Aegeus. We played them um, over invincibles, and we'd already gone through. We were already through to the finals, but for some reason, that was just still a, quite a big game for us. We'd restricted some quite a decent score, I think. I remember. Cap and Van Nierke were were going pretty well. They were batting together. And then I think it was this unbelievable partnership between Dunks and, and Maya Bouchier and they just completely won the game, basically. And Dunks was almost doing a lap of the Aegeus and it just felt like we'd won the whole tournament, really. It was just, I don't know, they just batted incredibly. And I think because there wasn't any pressure... On us really to win, but we still wanted to have that winning streak. Uh, you know, i was were going in pretty hard and yeah, they just battled my absolute jets and yeah, this lack of honour that Thanksgiving gave was just, was just crazy. And you could just see the fight, you know, despite us going to the finals anyway, they were still, you know, determined to win and, and get us over the line. So um, that was really special. And I think for me just playing at Lords and having my, my family there was just a really cool moment, you know, despite the result, finals day was was an amazing day and yeah, and be able to share that with my family at the end as well and actually be able to see them was very special despite obviously the cricket that went that happened, but yeah I think playing at Lords is is pretty magical and, and pretty special and also you know not everyone gets involved in finals day, especially at Lords as well. so that's definitely something which I'll, I'll cherish for a long
2: time And how do you think the 100 tested you as a bowler because obviously different format a lot of people well no one had really played it before there's a couple of practice games. Was there anything that you had to change or think about differently when you approached the 100? Yeah, it was definitely much more
3: ruthless, much less modern Ferrer, even more so than a T20 as well. Kind of reflecting from it now, I think a lot of my bowling was probably a little bit timid and kind of too worried about who was at the other end. Whereas hopefully next year going into it, I, I'll play much more fearlessly and, and a bit more ruthless. Yeah, it definitely wasn't a bowler friendly tournament. I think you just have to be really clinical with your death bowling. Pretty much every ball was some sort of variation and just try not to be too predictable. You're only bowling five balls in and over. So just trying to get in and out as quickly as possible and and making sure your field is going to back that up. You know, I learned the hard way in the first game against Nat Siver. And then you are going to come up against just some absolute world-class batters who, you know, you bowl well and they're still going to hit you for a boundary. So it's kind of known that that's going to happen anyway. You're going to get hit for a boundary. You might get hit back-to-back boundaries. But it's about... Trying to execute your best plan as possible and and trying to restrict them as best as you can. So, yeah, tough,
1: but you know, that's part of the game. And with your bowling action as well, so obviously you get a good amount of speed, you also get quite a lot of airtime, don't you? And that front arm comes down quite heavy as well. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is really, but yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. A, yeah, it's quite a signature kind of bowling action, though, isn't it? But for any kind of young bowlers who want to be kind of quick seamers,
3: what advice have you got for them? I'd say right now I think it's easy for and I would do this as well when I was a bit younger it's very easy to run in 100 miles an hour and then just chuck the ball anywhere on the side of the net try and if you can just slow your run up down I know that seems like a massive ego thing and in your head it doesn't make sense but if you slow your run up down and. Build up to it, so kind of go up the gears, one to five or one to ten, and then bowl the ball. You'll find you have loads more control. You're consistently bowling the same speed, and then when you do get a bit bigger and stronger, then it's all about trying to keep your front leg still when you land. Brace that front leg, and you should be able to snap down the crease, and and hopefully go on absolute rapid fire. But um, yeah, it's something which I would always do. Just try and run in as quick as I can. And even now, when I feel a bit rushed or um, I don't know, I get frustrated. I want to hit someone on the head. i run in too quick and then I kind of lose shape. So just, um, yeah, find that repeatable action, find that good speed, that good tempo for
2: you. I'm sure it'll be fine. But like, obviously we had Anya as captain. How did you find that Tara? That was obviously for you as a bowler, someone to look up to, a legend of women's cricket in England. So how was that? Did you get any piece of advice or was there anything that you saw her doing that you thought actually I could do that before a game or that's a really good thing to do?
3: Yeah, Anja was brilliant. I've actually never really worked with her. or have been in the same team with her. So to finally be able to do that and have her captain me was just crazy. She's um, she's hilarious, first of all. You know, very down to earth, really cool, really lovely person. And and her knowledge of the game is, is just outstanding. I remember before the first game, she pulled me to one side. We had just gone through like our plans and, and gone through the team and, and kind of all the analysis stuff. And she'd pointed to one side and said, I can see your brain like ticking and you're your eyes going all over the place and she just said look just take a deep breath don't forget to enjoy it like you're here to enjoy yourself as well don't get caught up in whatever's going to happen don't worry about what's going to happen and I think that was really important for me and I think I needed someone to say that to me because I could feel myself getting quite nervous really kind of anxious about what's going to happen and about the next day and my plans and oh my gosh I'm going to bowl against this batter and you know, last time I played in the KSL, I remember Lizelle Lee must have hit me for like 30-odd and one over. And I think I just kind of had flashbacks of that as a, you know, young young bowler. And that conversation that we had was, it kind of just took all the pressure off. And there was a lot of relief. And he said, look, I'm, you know, 20-odd and play for England, but I still get those feelings. You know, don't worry about it. So I think this just having that kind of character is fantastic in any team. And yeah, just her sense of humour is, is brilliant. Like, there's always a funny moment with Anya. Yeah, she's just good fun on and off the pitch.
1: And also being within that kind of bubble environment as well. I think fans kind of forget how much sacrifice players do give up just to be able to play the game, just to be able to entertain. Obviously, you want to play and perform for yourselves, but for fans, you know, they're buying into this product of 100. They don't get to see what goes on behind the scenes when it comes to that kind of you're in your room, you're on your own and you've got so much time to yourself. Like, How did you deal with that? Because obviously you couldn't just go out to a restaurant and you couldn't go off and see your family and stuff. It was a period of time where... You were in isolation, and we'll come on to that a bit later on as well, because you've had to do quite a bit of isolation this year, haven't you?
3: Yeah, there is a lot of downtime. There's a lot of Uber Eats as well. Oh my gosh, delivery must have cashed in during the 100 because that's all we are just eating. Yeah, I think when you're in a good team, you can be with those players and it's good fun. And you know, you find yourself playing cards, or I think where we were staying, we had a really good kind of rooftop area which was outside, it was always sunny. So we could, you know, have drink coffee, chat rubbish, play cards, kind of do whatever. When you're away and at different hotels, and essentially in, in not your, you know, your ho- hotel bed, it did get a little bit lonely. You know, you're in different environments. And if you're not winning games, as well, I think that can be really tough. And kind of the, the energy in a team, you can tell, you know, people are up and down. I think most when you're with the team and you're on the bus, I mean, even on the bus, you couldn't sit next to players because of COVID, you kind of had to be Two to one table of four, or kind of separated out, so you couldn't really. It was quite hard to speak to people. There was a lot of ne- a lot of Netflix watching, and we find you find yourself like watching other hundred games as well. We're watching the men's game as well, other women's teams games. So yeah, there was a lot of downtime. But when you're training and stuff, you're exhausted from travelling, training. You know, there's meetings, um, men's just being switched on. So it was kind of just trying to balance your time and speak to players. And family kind of who aren't in the bubble but yeah hopefully next year it's not as restricted and we can go out and do stuff and
2: you know even just do like activities. Yeah and obviously we've spoken quite a lot about I guess your journey from like KSL and then Rachel Hayo Flint Trophy and the 100 and, and everything like that. Can you just talk us through sort of when you first started playing cricket how old were you and how did you get into the game?
3: Yeah I was probably about eight years old. I was born American and, and grew up in Spain so I'd never heard of cricket, never knew what it was my my dad watched cricket but I'd never I don't ever remember him talking about it or watching it and so yeah I moved to the UK in 2006 and kind of was still looking for friends and was quite on my own quite a bit and made friends with someone they said oh I'm gonna do the after school cr- cricket club do you want to join well yeah why not I don't know what happened but I just picked it up really quickly found myself joining the after school club I was the only girl there and they pushed me towards uh like a girls club team which I played for Horsham and then through that, kind of went through the Sussex pathways and then kind of up to end of 15s um, England, like development stuff. And kind of just carried on through there and went through all the age group age groups and then was playing senior county cricket. But um, yeah, I'd I, no one in my family played. I've got two older sisters who are very unsporty. So, yeah, how I got into it is is kind of weird. But, um, you know, it's obviously worked and I'm, I'm stuck at it. So, yeah, here we are
1: and you've played tennis as well don't you or you used to play tennis
3: I feel like there's a big hype about me playing tennis (laughs) there really isn't like I just like a little bit of social tennis you know a little bit of doubles on a weekend um but I did play tennis (laughs) I did play tennis in Spain like that was what you did in PE lessons you know as a kid I'd kind of just hit a tennis wall against the wall but I felt there is big hype and if someone watched me play tennis they'd be like is that it (laughs) but um yeah I mean it's something which I I'd play purely socially. If I didn't play cricket 100% I would love to be a professional tennis player. Maybe that's um post-cricket career I don't know but um yeah. But yeah no, so I was just gonna say there must be
1: some sort of transferable skills with that as well just leading you into that kind of cricket playing
3: pathway. Yeah maybe the same hand-eye coordination I guess or just being quite competitive anyway and just I don't know naturally enjoying sports and And like winning and and that kind of thing whereas yeah my sisters are the complete opposite they're not competitive at all they don't like getting sweaty (laughs) you know they didn't want to they'd never come outside to to hang out with me or play with me in the garden so yeah
2: it's it's funny but I guess that's how it works. Obviously a lot of a lot has changed within women's cricket in terms of like professionalization um, and things like that was there a moment when you thought hang on cricket can be a career for me and there is some sort of career within the game? Yeah I guess I probably didn't watch like a woman's an England woman's game until I was
3: maybe 13 and I thought wow this is amazing and again kind of that kind of ignorant child that didn't really know anything about cricket I wasn't aware there was a woman's international team and I think even then they weren't fully professional and then it probably I guess kind of once I went up the pathways and got a little bit older and saw it could be professional I thought wow this is amazing but even then only two years ago to be professional you had to play for England and that was until the regional contracts came in which at that point I was in my final year at university, writing my dissertation, kind of not really sure where women's cricket was going and where kind of what I was going to do with my life, really. Was not accepting a contract, let alone a retainer contract. So yeah, to get that phone call, it was complete shock, to be honest, and just relief and like, oh my God, this is actually happening to me. This is crazy. Yeah, literally the week I handed my dissertation in, I think the week before I got a phone call from, from Adam Carty, um, our vipers director and yeah I got the phone call and that was kind of it i moved back home and and was training with the vipers maybe a month later i think that's the story for most players
1: of your generation and those a bit older that you grew up not having as many kind of female role models because the game wasn't as accessible yeah. the women weren't playing on tv so much the sky deal only came in really during the ksl mm-hmm. even in that, even in that first year of the ksl it was only a couple matches on sky it wasn't the whole
3: yeah, it isn't four. the final maybe. But yeah, no, I completely agree. There aren't enough female role models in cricket or in sport. And I remember as a kid, we had loads of Olympians actually come to our school, but none of them were female. And I think it's such a shame the way when the sport is going, there should be more female athletes coming to schools or giving talks or doing assemblies. Because if you're not aware of it, well, you know, it's like the one percentage of people who do follow that pathway, who do follow their passion. But a lot of other girls get pushed into other things, which maybe it's only because that's, you know, typically a, a girl's thing to do. You know, I coach at school now and we're struggling to get a team out because cricket isn't classified as, you know, it's not cool. So the, the, absolutely, there needs to be more female role models in the sport and not just cricket, but, you know, in other areas and, you know, in physics and sciences and medicine. Just to really I don't know advocate and show that this is possible. If you have a passion, yes, do it, pursue it. And almost that belief that, you know, living, breathing proof that, yes, you can do this and it's great and it's brilliant and you should do it as well
1: yeah that's so interesting as well because I was going to say that hopefully now girls do have those role models and I guess that is still true but it is more accessibility to you guys as players and you know social media as well the boom of that is obviously brought back closeness even more like you can put stuff on Instagram and unfortunately 10 year olds are on Instagram I mean I'm sure they shouldn't be yeah that is that is worrying <laughs> but they can engage with you they can see your photos and just know
3: that cricket is a game for them completely agree and I think that's that's the positive of social media as well there's also you know the negative side of it but when you use it for that purpose like Cass was with in the hundred then you can advocate that and you can show the the good stuff in the sport and that pathway and and kind of the stuff behind the scenes as well
1: what you also mentioned there as well was about that lack of opportunity in terms of before the regional contracts there wasn't you know people could have just given up so easily there's so many girls so many generations of players who went through the whole county pathway got to that under 19s level either went off to uni went to Loughborough and it's amazing or didn't and then just gave up focus on their careers instead because Mm. at the end of the day they weren't going to make money from cricket because that wasn't an option so do you feel obviously you must feel quite grateful but do you also feel like you know it was right time right moment right time but at the same time it's like you worked hard for it as well to be able to get those contracts but yeah what do you think about that?
3: yeah a lot of people say oh wow you're so lucky and I think yeah I am incredibly lucky but you know I've also worked my butt off for the last you know eight to ten years and players who have worked even harder and and way longer yeah I think there was an element of luck the way the contracts came in at that exact time um for me it was perfect timing I'd literally just finished uni I was fresh out of uni looking for a job you know ready to make some money and and you know sick of being a student and living for student loan so yeah, yeah there was an element of luck with the timing but I think all the players that were contracted have worked incredibly hard and that wasn't luck you know that was down to hard work and determination and sacrifices you know i, I do completely agree with you um and hopefully you know the luck will be that there's more funding and it won't just be six players contracted. that will be four teams contracted um and kind of so on and more money and, and that kind of thing
2: Yeah and I've just just going back to sort of social media I think it's like Hannah mentioned it's really cool that especially with women's sport there is a high level of sort of accessibility to athletes so like like we did in the 100 getting behind the scenes like chatting to you guys showing your personalities and things do you think that sort of as that goes on there's almost a bit of a pressure though as a sort of up-and-coming role model the professional game of, of feeling like You have to be careful what you post or how much of your life you show to to other people. Because I can imagine before the 100, before sort of Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy, you didn't have to think about anything like that. But now you're actually having to think about what you post online and and how you're coming across.
3: Yeah, I think it's definitely something that I'm conscious of when I post or I think because I coach as well. I'm aware that there's a lot of kids that I coach on social media. So that's always probably before cricket that's kind of in my head of okay well I coach these kids you know what do I want them to see uh what's kind of acceptable and appropriate and then I guess yeah from Cricket 100 there is that element of you know is this this acceptable um should it maybe be put on a different I don't know like a close friends list if you really want to put it out there but then I think it's brilliant to use that platform to show that yeah actually this is what I do at training or this is what I do when I'm not a cricketer this is what I do in my spare time this is What's important to me. But yeah, I'm definitely aware of it and definitely trying to restrict it and keep it, you know, appropriate. And but also something which shows a little bit of my personality and what I enjoy as well.
2: Yeah, I definitely think that's like an interesting thing going forward, like that balance between showing your personal life and sort of engaging fans, but also like you kind of want a private life as well. So it's interesting to see how different people sort of approach that. But I know you mentioned um, before that you're obviously born in USA. We know recently that you've joined up with the USA team. Can you tell us a bit about that process, how it happened and what your experiences have been with the squad so far?
3: Yeah, um, that kind of happened during the 100 as well, which is, you know, a great thing about the game as well. Um, yeah, our coach of the Brave, Charlotte Edwards, messaged me and said, hey, um, this, uh, this coach, Julia Price, um, is trying to get in touch with you. Do you mind if I send on your details? Um, she's the head coach of USA Cricket. And I thought, okay, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll speak to her, see you know, what she wants to do to speak to me, basically. And she called me and mentioned there was a tour to Mexico and to Zimbabwe and a couple of tournaments going on for some T20 qualifiers and, and 50 over World Cup qualifiers. And essentially said, look, if you can get your passport renewed, we'd love you to come out. Um, it would be amazing. You know, what do you think? And I spoke to Lart and, um, she said, absolutely, you should go for it. So I think after the 100, Um I went to London, went to the US Embassy, gave them all my details, um, all the kind of documents. And then yeah, passport arrived a week later and they booked my flights. And literally, I think not even a week after the the Hey-Ho final, I was on a plane to San Francisco and had, you know, absolutely no idea what was going to happen, who I was gonna meet, the kind of you know adventures I'd go on, but it honestly ended up being one of the best things I've ever done. I just had the time in my life really. And the girls that I'm out there, the team were just just incredible. Honestly, I can't speak highly enough of them it was just two and a half months of just a lot of fun um some really good cricket and just really good people that i met out there yeah the whole thing even now i'm back it's it's a little bit of a blur but the whole kind of process of how it happened you know i think and the way it happened as well you know i wasn't expecting that phone call i kind of didn't even think about usa cricket i wasn't even really aware of it so i think the way it happened as well was was quite nice and there was no expectation really and then, yeah, kind of came off a, a successful season into these tournaments. Yeah. And I think the team's ability just to welcome me into that team was amazing. Um, you know, I could completely be myself. And literally the moment I stepped off that plane, I stupidly went to training. And I was like, i landed at Musiland about 6pm like and there was training 8 till 10pm. And I think there was, there was a little bit of controversy whether I was, you know, about my selection because I hadn't played in their interregionals. So I technically hadn't qualified, but because I was eligible and played regional cricket in the hundred, I, I was selected. So I was kind of aware of that initially and you know, aware that I might have taken someone's position. So I thought, okay, I've just landed, I can't be seen as a slack. I'm gonna to come to training. And I was honestly, I was so jet lagged I was like a zombie. And even the girls now like would mention it. And I've got no recollection of that training session at all. I think I sidearmed or I threw. I don't think I actually trained, but I wanted to be involved and I wanted to meet everyone. But honestly. I've got no recollection of this training session um, because I was just so jet lagged and just exhausted from this, I don't know, 12 or 16 hour flight, whatever it was. But yeah, as soon as I walked in, they were just so welcoming and and just really great people.
2: And what are the sort of differences between cricket out in the USA compared to England? How did you find the differences there? I think uh, because America is just so big, I kind of took
3: for granted how easy it is for a team to train in one place. Obviously, they're all, you know, West Coast, East Coast. And in terms of facilities as well, they were... You know, it makes you realise how grateful you are. They were just training in indoor nets. There was no real outdoor wicket or any like turf net. They had one warm up game against a boys team, which I didn't play in that game. But, you know, it was essentially just a to park. So in terms of facilities, there is a big difference. And I guess funding as well. So, yeah, that was a big difference. And actually, you know, some really talented cricketers, but kind of just the lack of facilities, which was a real shame. And also how hard it is to get everyone, you know, all in one place together for a camp or, or whatever. But, um, you know, the standard was was different. And especially, you know, I'd come back off, you know, the hundred and, and regional cricket. But it was still, you know, I was challenging in lots of other ways. You know, I'm, all of a sudden I'm bowling with a, a short leg and two slips in the gully, which I've never had in my life. No idea what's going to happen if I'm even going to get a catch there kind of thing. You know, find myself batting a little bit higher up the order. Take on maybe a slightly more leadership role, which... I'm not very experienced in. So I I really enjoyed that aspect. And also found myself feeling the slips as well, which (laughs) normally I'd stay well clear of. Um, But again, I really enjoyed that. And that's something which, you know, I've not really done before and and enjoyed kind of that new role and responsibility and just yeah, finding my, my place in the team, I guess. And obviously you had such a dominant performance in the Americas qualifiers.
1: Um, what was it like playing those teams as well, like Argentina, um, Brazil? Obviously, we've had Roberta on the podcast before. Did You actually get to speak okay.
3: to her. Yeah, I did. Oh my gosh, Roberta's great. She, um, she's brilliant. Yeah, I remember kind of the first game. The Brazilians just had this tambourine that just kept whacking it, and honestly, you could hear it like you could hear it before you even arrived to the ground. Um, and all week, I'd said, "Oh my gosh, that that tambourine man! Like they keep playing it." And then by the end, I'd sort of taken it, and I was. I was going for it, but um, yeah, you know, they were just, both teams were brilliant, all teams, Canada as well. You know, we were all staying in the same hotel, so you could kind of socialise with them. And unfortunately, because of COVID, you know, there wasn't a lot you could see from hotel to ground and back. But because we're all in the same hotel and accommodation, you know, you can speak to those players on days off. And it was really nice to kind of just hear people's different experiences of their cricket. And, you know, Brazil, I've got all contracted players, which is incredible. Um, And just their energy and their love and their passion for the game and their, you know, their pride in playing for Brazil and their country. You know, every national anthem for Brazil was very emotional because they just, you know, they were very emotional singing themselves. And, you know, you've got a flag wrapped around them, especially Roberta and the Argentines as well. You know, they had very little funding and and little support you know there's brazil with like 10 extended um, staff members there's us who are really fortunate with you know a head coach an essence a physio and then argentina with just one member of staff and you know they're sharing kit bags and not all of them have spikes but they're out there and they're loving their cricket they're bowling unbelievably um, again they've got amazing spirit amazing energy and that's not meant to be patronizing at all it's just how good they are and how good they could be if they had that bit more funding and support thrown their way so that was really kind of eye-opening and and really cool to see and and hear kind of all their
2: experiences. And what do you think uh, sort of playing for USA will add to your game I know you spoke about the sort of leadership responsibilities and that sort of different role how do you think that will benefit you sort of coming back to Vipers and hopefully the 100 next year as well? Yeah I think
3: more so the Zimbabwe to all the, the World Cup qualifiers you know I was we were playing against Bangladesh and Thailand, Pakistan. And that was a crazy experience. And to, you know, personally for me, I hope it will really improve my batting as well and and get a bit more opportunity and to face like face international bowlers, which is incredible. And I think, yeah, having those games under my belt as well, and hopefully, you know, I can be a bit more successful in future tournaments if there are future tournaments and hopefully kind of take, I guess, the confidence from that into my Vipers cricket, into hundred cricket and so forth. And yeah you know if gad says to me do you want two slips of gully and a short leg you know I'll know what I have to do because I've done it um previously and that kind of thing so I think yeah just being exposed to different types of cricket different um conditions like I've never experienced altitude like I did in Mexico it was like it was worse than any like VOT max I've ever done you know in like a a uni lab session it was honestly it was horrific I've never experience anything like that so in terms of yeah fitness levels playing back-to-back 50 over games playing against different teams like I said conditions just kind of I guess a holistic overview of, of taking that back to the Vipers with me. And you mentioned there as well about the Women's
1: Cricket World Cup qualifier in Zimbabwe it obviously got uh, um, abandoned what was that yeah. like <laughs> absolute world win chaos like how did you deal with that?
3: Do you know it was it was absolute carnage but I think at that point because everything was up in the air you know we got told like six different things in the space in 24 hours it was like we're going here now we're going here now we're going here I think my by the end of it it was you know i was so phased not sorry not phased by it and so tired from not sleeping for about four days because we were traveling it was kind of like yeah okay that's fine yeah oh we're going here now okay oh we can't stay here now oh okay yeah no worries and it was just like you know everything was going to be fine we were going to get back eventually you know it's just hilarious having all teams on one flight and kind of hopping around the airports and you know borders were shutting left right center I got told I couldn't get back to the UK I couldn't go to Dubai <laughs> it was kind of yeah just no one was really phased it was like okay well we're going to get back eventually everyone's safe everyone's you know everyone's gonna be all right. it was just crazy just so much happened and you know then we lost our kit bags and <laughs> it was just um yeah it was a, a hectic couple of days but you know it all worked out fine and, and everyone was okay.
1: but yeah so just looking ahead now to 2022 what is your new year's resolution and your hopes for the season ahead?
3: New year's resolutions um I don't tend to do resolutions if I'm honest but I definitely have a lot of goals and and kind of aspirations for the season and I suppose as a team for the Vipers, it's to hopefully make it three out of three in the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy and hopefully go go one more in the Charlotte Edwards Cup. We struggled in the T20 quite a bit and that was kind of when we were losing players as well. So if we can get to finals day again and go one more, that would be amazing and, and get the double as well would, be, yeah. would just be insane. And I guess individually would be to hopefully carry on from the Rachel Hayhoe final in terms of my batting and, and kind of become a genuine all-rounder for the Vipers. And I think this, be able to contribute both bat and ball is a big goal of mine and you know knowing that okay well if I don't perform with the ball I can perform with the bat and yeah and be a key role and a key player for the vipers and yeah hopefully go one more with 100 as well and, and be successful and and hopefully have a bit more opportunity as well and you know be a wicket-taking bowler and and be that like death bowler or the bowler that can bowl in all phases of the game um and be successful mm-hmm. and then because kind of the general malarkey less time on your phone drink more water you know that kind of stuff
1: fabulous so Cass this is like Alex's favourite part. of Yeah, so just really quick fire questions.
3: Okay, you ready? Favourite ground yeah. to play at? A GS bowl. Favourite music? Oh, like the worst question. I'm terrible at that. Uh, a bit of everything. Spice level at Nando's? Medium. Uh, favourite teammate to play with? Oh, that's so, that's so hard. That's so mean. Lauren Bell. Batting or bowling? Uh, bowling.
2: T20 or the 100? 100. Cats or Dogs. Dogs. Bowling the first ball of the game. Or the last (laughs) ball? (laughs) Uh, Last ball. Dancing or singing?
3: Oh, dancing. Teammate with the worst fashion sense? Very controversial. Um, Love her to bits, but Maya Bouchier. (laughs) Best dancer in the group? In the Vipers? Vipers or Rudd? Carla Rudd, I reckon, or Stefani Taylor. Favourite country? God, this is really hard, actually. Um, Spain. The last book you read? Oh, last book I read. I'm actually reading the Will Smith... Um, biography at the moment. I can't remember the last book I read, but um, that's great so far. So I recommend that to anyone at the moment. Love that, yeah. Thank
1: you so much. No, thanks for having me. I, I yeah, really enjoyed you. it. Yeah, no, so, honestly, we could have asked you so much more, but
0: time is escaping us. It's,
1: it's got to be a part two, three, and four at this rate. Yeah,
0: 100%. Massive thank you to Tara for sitting down with Hannah and Cassie and talking about. The Hundred, Southern Vipers, how she got into cricket. It's really interesting to hear that she was born in America, lived in Spain and then came to England and found her love of cricket through an after school club. You know, very normal family, upbringing, sisters didn't play cricket so it's really great to see someone like that from humble beginnings succeed. And to all our listeners, if you want to keep up to date with everything we're doing, you can follow us on Twitter at WCricketChat, on Instagram at Women's Cricket Chat. And if you want to give us a like on Facebook, we are Women's Cricket Chat. If you'd like to give our personal Twitters a follow, then it's at HannahT1194, at GeorgiaHeath27, at Cassie Coombs 98 and I'm at Alex Jane Pereira on Twitter. This has been Women's Cricket Chat. Tune in next time.